0: Have you ever been asked a question that you weren't ready for? Maybe it was one of your employees asking your opinion on some current event, or maybe it was a kid in the Sunday school class you teach, or even your own kid asking you something about God or the Bible or how we really know that something that we believe is true and it caught you off guard. I've been there too. We all have, but the founding belief of the Think Institute is that no believer should ever get caught flat-footed when asked about what or why we believe. That is why I do AMA's on Discord. AMA stands for Ask Me Anything, and Discord is a web app for hosting chat and voice discussions. Twice a month, I hop on Discord, and a guy named Ellipsis, one of the owners of the politics server, that's not his real name, and he's also a Christian, hosts a voice chat room where anyone can ask me any question about the biblical view on life, right and wrong, truth, science, God, Jesus, church, philosophy. You get the idea. I do these AMAs in order to sharpen my skill in applying timeless biblical truth to current cultural challenges, in order to be ready to answer anyone who asks me for a reason for the hope that I have, just as First Peter 3.15 says, and to clear away obstacles to faith that my discussion partners may have, but I also want to help you, the Think Squad, be more ready for the next time that you are faced with an unexpected question about what you believe and you know that it's coming. Oh, you may also find that some of your own questions are answered as well. I hope that you enjoy and are edified by this AMA. My name is Joel sedeck In 2009 i left my job in the business world to teach bible at a christian high school in chicago impacted by my students questions i set out on a journey that brought me first to seminary to study apologetics and philosophy of religion and then into pastoral ministry. As a pastor, I saw firsthand the struggle of believers confronted with questions of life that at first seemed impossible to answer, and the powerful confidence that came when they saw how God's Word gives the answers and guidance they needed. I had a dream to spread that message and equip more followers of Jesus, so my family and I joined crew and launched the THINK Institute. Now I'm on a mission to equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message by applying timeless biblical truths to current cultural challenges. I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to find them. And through this show, I'm reporting back to you, the Think Squad, what I discover. Welcome to the Think Podcast. Really quickly before we start, learning how to interpret all of life through the lens of God's Word takes a lot of work, more than just one or two podcast episodes a week. If you have an interest in the intersection between the biblical worldview and biblical manhood and current events, as I do, as well as philosophy, theology, and many, many leather bound books, consider joining our free online community, the Think Squad group, on Facebook, Gab, and on Signal. There, you can join hundreds of other Christ followers who are also on the same journey, and we trade apologetic stories and strategies. We discuss philosophy and theological questions. It's like a huge bull session around a bonfire in your backyard or at your favorite cigar lounge. So check out the Think Squad group on Facebook, Gab, and Signal.
1: What verse or biblical story has had the biggest impact on your day-to-day life?
0: The quick answer has to be the story of the gospel, um, which is pretty much summarized in first Corinthians 15, uh, one through eight, where it says, um, it talks about the gospel being the, it's the truth that we, we stand in or that we stand upon, um, by which we are being saved. And that the gospel message is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures Uh, he appealed or he appeared rather to many witnesses and uh, even appeared to paul who's writing the letter to the church in corinth um and uh that message has completely changed my life um, on a grand scale um and that's the message i want to tell everybody about there is another verse though which is um which has had a really direct impact on my everyday life and that is um from exodus uh, exodus 14:14 14, 14, and it says it's very short just one verse the lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent i Really like that verse, and it's had a major impact on my life because there's so much loaded into it, but it reminds me that God is, is not only is he the authority over the universe, the controlling power, the controlling king over the universe, he's sovereign, but He's also he also cares about me. He's with me. And I'm a guy who likes to fight. I'm a guy who I kind of have a combative nature, and I love to stand up for myself, to speak up for what's right. And there's something very humbling, very calming, very um, reassuring about the idea that the Lord himself, Yahweh himself, will fight for me, and I don't have to—in uh, the end, I don't have to vindicate myself because God will do so. So uh, that's had a major impact on my life um, in, in terms of like my day-to-day life. It's, it's, it's enabled me to ease back from certain battles that I would have otherwise would have wanted to fight. Um, it's helped me make peace where, you know, in my natural self, I maybe didn't want to. And um, it's sort of helped me to just uh, relax a little bit, <laughs> relax a lot, actually
1: awesome thank you so much for that joel uh the snowy banana (laughs) who is the most based character in the old testament oh um
0: the most based character man david was pretty based david was super based um maybe oh man maybe elijah maybe elijah elijah so here's the thing about elijah he challenged this was at a point when israel had been taken over by pagan religion the king was a pagan he was an idolater the queen was an evil queen i mean if you've ever read like the chronicles of narnia you know about the evil queen the snow queen she was basically a real life version of of uh the, the ice queen from Narnia, just super evil, killed people, just mercilessly, you know, had them killed, killed prophets, killed God's prophets, hundreds of God's prophets. She just had them slaughtered. And here you go. Here you've got Elijah. Now, Elijah had gone to the king with a pronouncement from God and had said, there's not going to be any rain on the land for three and a half years. And lo and behold, there was no rain on the land. There was a drought. And so nobody had any crops. Nobody had water or very little water because they, you know, they were alive, but there was a drought and it was really hard times. Some of you guys, you know, living in, if you live like in California or out in the West Coast, you know, you've dealt with some droughts in, in past years. It's brutal. And everyone was blaming Elijah for this. Well, Elijah comes out of hiding after three and a half years. And he challenges the prophets, the priests of Baal, the false god, Baal, if you will, Baal. And he brings them up on a Mount Carmel, which is this high mountain. And he says, he says to the people of Israel, he goes, How long will you limp between two opinions? If the Lord is God, Yahweh is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. And he sets up this challenge it's challenge of the gods he says whichever god can call down fire from heaven that is the god that will worship and the people agree to this and you can sort of see the the prophets of Baal kind of you know uh, uh shall we say uh, uh wedding themselves because they're <laughs> they've got to be terrified because their god's not real okay but they're they're exercising power ideological power and control over the people based on this false god so, for, for most of the day, the prophets of Baal are up there praying to their God, crying out to their God, and they're, they're doing these obscene, violent acts. They're cutting themselves, harming themselves. The blood is flowing freely. There's no, no fire, but um, the blood is, is pouring down from their wounds, self-inflicted, and Elijah starts to mock them. Rather than, you know, you, you think maybe you would have some pity on them. Oh, you know, they've got their religion. I've got mine. Maybe theirs isn't so bad. I kind of feel bad for them. No, he starts mocking them. He says, oh, maybe your God is on a, a trip. Maybe he's on a journey. Surely he's a God. And then he goes, maybe he's relieving himself. <laughs> it's like, he just, he just. Merciless. And he knows at any time these guys, I mean, they outnumber him, you know, several dozen to one, 400 to one. And he's just mercilessly mocking them, mocking their God, mocking their, their whole system. And then finally he goes up and he cries out to the Lord and says, Lord, show them that you're the real God. God instantly sends fire down. It burns up the sacrifice, dries up all the water. He had poured water on the sacrifice. Just, to, just to show that there were no tricks, burns up all the water, and then has the, uh, and then rallies the people, and and has the people slaughter the prophets of Baal. I mean, these these were evil, evil people who were leading Israel astray, holding them captive to false ideologies, just spiritually enslaving the people, and uh, just wins this unbelievable victory and just totally based the entire time. Not once is he afraid. Not once does he cower. Not not once does he try to be winsome or or win them over. He says, this is the truth. And I'm not afraid of that. I'm going to stand firmly on the truth. And lo and behold, truth wins out. So just thoroughly based. I I would say he's got to be in the top three for most based in the Old Testament. Maybe maybe the most based. And actually there's a reason. One more thing really really quick. There's a reason why um when uh, the prophet Malachi is talking he's he's for he's foretelling of another prophet who is going to come and prepare the way for the Messiah to come, for the Lord to come. And he says that Elijah is going to return. Elijah is going to come back. And at that point the the Hebrew people reading that the Israelites would have said, Oh, Elijah. Yeah, that's exactly who we want leading the way before the the coming of the Lord. And lo and behold, if you read the New Testament, Jesus says that John the Baptist is the Elijah. He's not the reincarnation of Elijah. The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation, but he's like another Elijah. And then you read about John the Baptist, super duper based. I won't get into his story because you said Old Testament, but He's very, very Elijah-like. So I think my vote would probably go to Elijah.
1: He was, he was very based. Very based. Um, um, next question from Talisa: Are Catholics real Christians? What about Mormons? Question mark.
0: All right, good question. Um, so l- give me, give me a second to gather my thoughts on that, if you will. All right. Um, are are Catholics and Mormons, real no Christians? Well, let's define what a real Christian is. The word Christian means little Christ. And it was originally applied as an insult to the believers. The the Christians were first called followers of the way or disciples. Disciple means student or follower. And it was at Antioch, which was a multicultural city, a very diverse church there. They were first called Christians and the word literally means little christ why is that well we've we've adopted this title for ourselves we we actually like the title and the reason why is because it it signifies that that's exactly what we want to be we want to be little christs we want to be like jesus we're not better than our master jesus himself said no student is ever better than his master but he'll be like his master, and that's what we want to be, is we want to be like our master Jesus. Well, how does someone become a little Christ? Well, I can tell you this. You don't get there by works. You don't get there by works of the law, good deeds. The reason why is the Bible expressly says, by works of the law shall no one be justified. No, to become a a little Christ, if you will, a, a, a follower of Jesus, a Christian, you have to have the spirit of Christ. Well, how do you get the spirit of Christ? You get the Spirit of Christ when God gives you the Spirit of Christ, which according to the book of Ephesians comes when you first believe, when you believe in the gospel. And belief, faith, faith in the gospel is what activates, let's say this, faith in the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior happens at the moment of regeneration, of being born again, which is what regeneration means. Jesus said in John chapter 3 you must be born again so when you have faith that Jesus Christ is Lord that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that God raised him again and that Jesus is not only the Lord but your Lord you've you've act you've you've placed your faith in Jesus according to the Bible God gives you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is is called many things called the holy spirit he's called the spirit of holiness he's called the spirit of christ it's it's the same he is the same spirit with which jesus was anointed when he was baptized if you read the gospel of the uh, read the gospel of mark for example it talks about how jesus was anointed with the holy spirit jesus then gives the holy spirit to everyone who believes in him who trusts in him as savior and as lord real faith Real Christian faith then is faith in the gospel. It's faith in God's grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, all those different alones that I just mentioned; those are sometimes called the five solas of the Reformation, and in Latin, there's sola Christe, there's sola Christus, sola fide—that's by faith alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone, um, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone, and sola scriptura, scriptures alone, scripture alone. Those five solas were the rallying cry, the five part rallying cry of the Reformation. And the Reformation was the reforming of the Church, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so so your question of are Catholics real Christians? Well, we we don't judge who's a real Christian by what church they belong to or what denomination they're a part of. We judge Christians to the extent that we can judge anyone. And, and we have to judge with sober judgment. We have to judge only by what God has laid down. And ultimately, we can't read anyone's heart. But God has given us an infallible standard. And it comes from the passages I just mentioned, but also from Ephesians 2, eight through 10, which says, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, not by works. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast for you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has uh, planned in advance for you to do. I'm misquoting that a little bit, but that's what it says. So insofar as someone trusts in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, and they've been born again, they are a real Christian. Now, I understand why you asked the question, well, at least I think. I'm going to presume a little bit. Bad idea usually, but I'll presume. Does The question is, does the Roman church teach the true gospel? That doesn't mean does every pastor or, or priest, rather, in the Roman church teach the gospel. Um Officially speaking, the Roman church has anathematized, that means eternally cursed, the gospel of grace alone through faith alone. They did this at the Council of Trent. It was part of the Counter-Reformation, which was in response to the Reformation. And they expressly said, if anyone believes that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, let them be anathema. So the Apostle Paul, on the other hand, in Scripture to the church in Galatia says, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be anathema. So you've got two counter-anathemas. You've got the church anathematizing grace alone through faith alone. You've got the Apostle Paul anathematizing any other gospel than grace alone through faith alone. Well, you tell me who wins. The Apostle Paul writing Holy Scripture breathed out by God, or the magisterium of the Roman church setting itself in opposition to the biblical gospel. Well, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ recorded in Holy Scripture has to win every time. So in so far as someone is a christian in the roman church then they are actually believing something the roman church officially does not teach because that's a doctrine that has never been recanted even though it's been nuanced over the years it's never officially been undone by the roman church and repented of so if someone negates if someone uh, countermands goes against official roman church doctrine they can be a christian but they but my advice would be get out of the Roman church now what about the um what about the the Mormon church Mormon church is is a lot further out there than the Roman church uh the church of uh, the the self-appointed church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and I cringe to call it that because it's the wrong Jesus uh it, it doesn't teach you how to become a saint and uh, yes we're in the latter days but they've got the wrong conception of that so the the um the Mormon doctrine is very very anti-biblical. It's a, it's it's a completely false gospel. At least with Rome, at least you have a belief that the Bible is the word of God. You can be in a Roman church and you can get the gospel sort of inadvertently. But um the Mormon Church would say that the the Bible is true as well, sort of. They say, insofar as it hasn't been corrupted, and then they've got their own Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. They do believe in the King James, but it's always interpreted through their own church traditions, which is really messed up, if I if I can say that. Um, so the Mormon Mormon uh, very briefly, they they've got a totally different Jesus. Their Jesus is a spirit brother of of Satan, and um was uh is is a is an actual child of elohim god the father who actually had intercourse with mary in order to reap in, in order to produce him um they believe that we can become gods salvation is by works um their view of the afterlife is three-tiered completely unbiblical and false so if by some chance someone becomes a Christian through the the Mormon Church, through the again self proclaimed Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, I would I would again say get out of the Mormon Church, uh, join a good Bible teaching church. You know, it's like in Revelation, there's this command to God's people, talking about Babylon as sort of a metaphor for false churches, I believe, and it says, "Come out of her, my people, lest you share in any of her sins." So. Is it possible to be a Christian and to be in the Roman Church or the Mormon Church religion? Yes, it's possible. Um, you can, you know, you can be a fish out of water, but eventually you're, you're going to need to get thrown back into the water. And I would say, if you're a Christian in either of those churches, I would say come out and join a real gospel preaching Bible believing church. We have another question from Esoteric with regards. Uh, Same sex
1: attraction, attraction, and the progressive Christians. Uh, so I'm going to invite him up to ask you the question. What do you, what do you think about the gays? That's my first question, I guess.
0: What do I think about the gays?
1: I guess, or I guess, what does the Bible interpret as?
0: Um, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by your question. Can you maybe make that a little bit more specific?
1: Is it in support of it, or is it in, I guess, not favor?
0: Um, when you say it, again, not, not trying to be a, not trying to belabor a point here. Is it in support of what exactly?
1: Gay marriage.
0: Okay. Gay marriage. So two men together or two women coming together yeah. in like a lifelong commitment and calling it a marriage. Yeah. You know, that's a good question. Um, have you looked into this in scripture at all? What, what have you found?
1: No, but I, I came and asked you because I want to get you know first hand
0: by a professional, I guess. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Well, so um, the way that marriage is defined in scripture is always a man and a woman. It's lifelong. It is specifically uh, not only is it a, a human institution, but it's a divinely um, given, divinely created institution. And there's theological significance to it as well. So if we're sort of tracing the theme of marriage, we would, uh, through scripture, we would start in Genesis. When God creates man, he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And he creates a woman from his side, not from his head so that she would rule over him, not from his feet so that she would be beneath him, but from his side. You know, you think about, um, think about a husband putting his arm around his wife to protect and to comfort her. That's the imagery that we have in Genesis. And the man says this really kind of beautiful poetic statement. He says, this at last is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. Um, I will call her woman for she was taken from a man. And then the Bible says that, um, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife. will be joined to, to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now you trace that theme through scripture and you always find this, this, uh, theme of what we would today call heterosexual just m- man and woman. And there are times when the, the institution of marriage is expressed differently, never homosexually, uh, at least not with God's approval. um, but by the time you get to the New Testament, you've got Jesus addressing divorce, and he reaffirms the, um, the original biblical plan, one man, one woman, and he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. He's talking about that in the context of divorce. And then his apostle, Paul, says that marriage actually, not only is it a beautiful Institution for people, but it also communicates something very powerfully theologically, where the husband, it's like a little mini play. The husband plays the role of, of Christ, and the wife plays the role of the church. And so the husband is supposed to lead, um, and, and, um, lay down his life for his wife, and the wife is, supposed to submit to her husband and it's this play they're play acting in a way but it's a uh, it's a union and then from that union of of love and of course um the sexual union that comes from that children are produced and it's this beautiful life-giving union the two become one flesh and 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 they become a new people they become a new family and so um you know When you contrast that with two men or two women coming together, there, there's nothing analogous between two men. It's more of a mirror image. It'd be, it'd be Christ and Christ, whereas two women would be church and church. And so it actually distorts what marriage is supposed to be. So marriage is defined by God it's not originally a human institution. It was actually given by God. And while we might, as human beings, try to modify it or redefine it, biblically speaking, we don't have the authority to do that. And when we do that, it corrupts what marriage is supposed to communicate. And further, if you look at Romans chapter one, that kind of copulation that kind of union is actually a sign of god's judgment on a people on people who have turned their back on god and are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness the truth about god in unrighteousness so yeah biblically speaking there is no sanction or approval of anything like what we today refer to as gay marriage
1: does that answer your question esoteric yeah. That's a good- yeah, we're just gonna see to those yeah, one of those questions. Answer, uh, I don't even have enough time to answer. Or yeah, no worries. Sure. See you guys. <laughs> hey, that's fine. Thanks for your Can question. To the next person? Yeah. Yeah. Good day, Joel. Same to you. No problem, man. Hi. forty-seven. Come on up. Hi. How's it going?
0: Hey. Doing well. How are you?
1: Yeah, I'm not so bad. Thanks. Um, uh, is it true that? Was it, I believe God uh, gave science to us humans as a tool to, 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 to like, use or something like that?
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah, I would say that that's okay. correct. Yeah, sure.
1: Okay. So, like, I mean, I, I kind of have a bit of trouble like understanding this, I guess, because when we talk about science, there are things in science that would contradict things that uh, might be said in the Bible or, like, truths of God. So, like, how would you sort of go about uh, explaining
0: that? Yeah, that's a good question. Totally, totally fair question. So, there are only two ultimate starting points for knowledge, and that's and science is a way of discovering knowledge. You know, the scientific method, where you have a hypothesis, you come or you have a, a question, you come up with a hypothesis you test the hypothesis, you record your conclusions and try to reason your way towards coming up with some sort of law, you know, in, inductively, we're going to come up with the law, the law of gravity or the law of conservation of, of uh, energy and that sort of thing. And as I say, there are only two ways ultimately of, of thinking about knowledge either We have, we can have certain knowledge because we stand on a platform of certainty that has been revealed to us by God. And the universe is created by God to be intelligible, meaning we can make sense out of it. It's governed by certain rules. There's a certain consistency, reliability, normality to the universe, to the cosmos. And and therefore we can do something like science. That's, we'll call that the biblical view. Or we take the position that we, we start from absolute nothingness. We, we make no assumptions and we, we simply try to starting with ourselves and our own experience. We try to build our own coherent platform of knowledge that can serve the same kind of purpose, to make the universe intelligible, to ascertain laws, to hopefully make some sense out of this universe. The first view is the view of men like Tycho Brahe, uh, Isaac Newton, uh, Copernicus, Galileo Galilei, what we would consider to be the fathers of the scientific revolution. They were committed Christians, even if they had some of their theology wrong. I think Isaac Newton had some of his theology wrong, but they were professing Christians. And it makes sense, then, that science would come from that kind of milieu, that kind of environment. Science, there's a reason why the scientific method never arose in China, in the Arab world, the Muslim world, or in in any other civilization, the Aztecs didn't have science. The scientific method came from Christian civilization because Christianity provides the soil in which science can grow. It lays down the expectations. That are necessary for science. We could call them the preconditions of science, the preconditions of intelligibility. In other words, if you start with the Bible, you're gonna you're gonna expect science. The Bible is rife with passages that tell you to investigate the world, and that you know the world is is certain and reliable. Um, starting from ourselves, however, you have to ask yourself, what kind of creature is man? What kind of creature am I? You know, am I all knowing? Am I all Powerful to what kind of control do I have over my environment? What kind of certainty can I have about all facts in the universe? And could there be facts in the universe which contradict everything that I think that I know? Well, the answer to all those questions, when you, when you really investigate them and and lay them out, is you find, you know, man is a, a frail thing. We're not the kind of necessarily existent creature that can ground something like the laws of logic or can keep the universe stable and consistent. I mean, I can, you know, I'm lucky if uh, I can remember to turn the dome light off in my car so that the battery doesn't die, let alone keep the stars and the sun going. I'm not that kind of being. I can't keep the universe, you know, I can't make sure the sun rises every day in the east. So, and I'm using, I'm using uh, metaphorical language, of course. I'm not a flat earther, but um, when we start with ourselves, I'll skip to the end for you. We are left with radical uncertainty about the world. And we find ourselves in this epistemologically contradictory situation where I, a almost infinitesimally small speck in the universe, am going to try to reason with my pea brain, only with my pea brain, and come up with laws about the nearly infinite universe on the one hand. So I'm, I recognize my radical uncertainty, but then I have to have radical certainty in order to do something like science because science relies on induct, the possibility of inductive reasoning. It, it, um, it requires uniformity in nature. If I do a scientific experiment on Tuesday, I need to be able to do the exact same thing the following Tuesday, the following week or the, or the next Saturday. And I should expect similar results. But I have no reason for expecting that the universe will act in a regular way if all that I have to go on is my own hunch, with my own uncertainty, my own infinitesimally small brain to try to make sense of the universe. So, thankfully, it was men who believed in the Bible who gave us science. Ultimately, God gave us science, as you said, but who discovered science, discovered the scientific method.
1: Yeah, I see that makes sense, but... Kind of, my point was, what about the contradictions? Yes, science and religion. Okay, something like evolution, for example. Got it.
0: Got it. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I know. I'm being very long winded here, but I think it's important to set the scene. So, yeah, of course. So, when it comes to something where when science contradicts scripture, remember scripture is what gives us the foundation for science. So, if science, if you find science, or at least your best efforts in science, contradicting scripture, you've You've made a wrong turn along the way. Science must, science done correctly must presuppose the truth of Scripture. If science contradicts scripture, it's undercutting its own foundation, and now you can no longer trust science. So evolution is a great example. Um, I am a firm believer that Neo-Darwinian or any sort of Darwinian evolution flatly contradicts the Bible. So I think it's great you brought that up. I think you see that. I fully agree with you. On that basis alone, evolution cannot be true. I also take it further, though. There are other reasons to disbelieve evolution. Uh, for one, I don't think the science supports evolution. I think time and time again, science is actually disproving evolution. Um, for example, you can go... There's this great podcast called Unbelievable. It's it's out of... Uh, uh, it's, it's Justin Brierley. He's based out of London, and there's a 2017 episode called "It's something like what happened at the what happened to evolution at the Royal Society or something like that." The Royal Society is the premier gathering of the world scientists, and in 2017 they pronounced evolution DOA, dead on arrival, a dead theory. Now that hasn't gotten out; it's not mainstream. Um, you're not going to hear that in your college biology class. But evolution is a dead theory. The reason why they didn't want to let it out, let that fact out, is because, according to them, they didn't want to allow, as they call it, intelligent design to have a foot in the door. Well, intelligent design is basically biblical creationism uh, without being explicit that it's God who created. I like to go all the way. I just say you know, biblical creation. But the fact of the matter is the science does not support neo-Darwinian evolution. It also doesn't support Lyellian geology and millions and and billions of years um that's we could get into a long conversation about that but i don't believe the science actually supports evolution whatsoever and there's a there's a further reason and that's this if we are the product mankind if we are the product of time and chance acting randomly on matter and yes evolution is random by definition however much we, w- we might want to say no it's it's natural selection that's the mechanism natural selection is not a, a mechanism it just describes what happens it's, it's just saying yeah. it's just saying this happened it's not a it's not an actual mechanism of any kind that that chooses one you know uh one one gene adaptation over another and even calling it an adaptation is too much we should say gene mutation um if that is what if, if all we are is the the product of, if we're a survival machine, uh, you know, we're just survival machines for selfish genes, as uh, Richard Dawkins puts it, that does not give you any basis whatsoever for trusting any of the conclusions of the human mind. We are just survival machines. Every thought that we have is there to aid in our survival, not to aim at anything like truth. However convinced we might be that what we believe is true, given that as a starting point, you can never have any sort of certainty whatsoever about any conclusion that you have. Well, that also includes the conclusion that man evolved. You have an undercutting defeater, as Alvin Plantinga says, for all of your beliefs. And that includes atheism, and that includes neo-Darwinian evolution. So if evolution is true, you have no reason for believing in it. So it, it just leads to radical skepticism about all our beliefs. And the fact of the matter is, that there's, the, there's a certain level of behavioral inconsistency that we all have. None of us lives like our lives are meaningless, like we're just, you know, randomly assembled bags of protoplasm. None of us lives like that. We all live like, like there's meaning, like we we're created, like the universe is intelligible. In short, we all live like we know God. And to the extent that we don't believe in Jesus, we don't believe in the Bible, we're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So, when science contra- so very briefly then to to answer your question, when science contradicts the Bible, what's going on is usually not actual science. It's usually mythology dressed up in scientific language, and we've taken a wrong turn somewhere, and we need to get back to foundations and see where we went wrong. All right.
1: Okay. I see. Thank you for your answer. Um, Thank you. Have a good
0: day. Same to you.
1: Uh, we have, I guess, beans. I don't know if you're up here to want to talk, but I'll, I'll go ahead and invite you up to ask your question. Um, hello. Hello. Wait, let me word this. Sorry. Um, how does science prove, uh, like creationism mm. or whatever?
0: Oh yeah, sure, sure. Okay, so, um, briefly, science itself depends on biblical truth, biblical principles. So science for us to be able to do something like science to 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 perform scientific inquiry it requires that the universe behave in regular ways so there have to be certain laws governing the universe and governing our thoughts and also there has to be a correspondence between our minds and our five senses you know our reasoning and our you know and our our touch and our sight and our smell. Um, there has to be a correspondence between our truth-seeking faculties and the universe. So, in my mind, I think one plus one equals two. In the universe, out in, in you know, space-time, I can take Two rocks, you know, one rock, another rock. I put them together and lo and behold, I've got two rocks. The math in my mind corresponds to the math, the way that things play out in the universe. There has to be a correspondence between those two. Now that we might just take that for granted. We go, well, yeah, of course, like, of course, what I think in my mind in terms of math and, and these, you know, logic, of course, that's going to correspond to the, to the way the world works. But that's not necessarily true. Albert Einstein recognized the astonishing coincidence, I put coincidence in scare quotes, between uh that is the correspondence between the way our minds work and the universe. So, but science science just takes that for granted. If we're going to do science, of course we 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 need math. We need, you know, I need to assume that what I'm seeing with my eyes is actually there in some sense. There's actually you know, photons bouncing off of the meter as I'm reading the meter and I'm reading what's actually there. There has to be a correspondence between the external world and what's going on inside my mind, between my ears and behind my eyes. Um, that all accords very well with the biblical worldview. According to the Bible, we're made in the image of God. We are called to reason. We are called to use our senses. We are called to seek truth. The Bible says that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to search it out. God wants us to uncover the mysteries of creation. So the, once you've picked up the test tube and assumed that you're going to do anything more than just you know be like a monkey and twirl it around and throw it on the ground and maybe break it, you're actually going to use that test tube to perform science, to to test a theory and to come to a conclusion. You've already given away the game. You've already presupposed that the Bible is true. Well, the same Bible that says all those things I just mentioned, that lays down the preconditions for science, also said God created the world in seven days. You know, also says that, that God is God and we are not. Also says that we are his creatures. Um, and that he created us to know him, to love him. And that we've rebelled against Him, and that our rebellion has earned us death and and judgment and hell, and that the only way to get right with God is to believe in His only Son, who died for sinners like you and me, who rose again, rose from the dead. So, if you're going to, no one, very few people think about this when they pick up the test tube, but the minute you you say I'm going to engage in scientific inquiry, you are tacitly presupposing all the truth of Scripture, right down to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is why I give a talk called Why Science Needs Jesus. It's on my website, the think.institute, if you search for it. And um, it's, it's true. Science needs Jesus. Now, that being said, once you actually start doing science, you find that the evidence, lo and behold, doesn't support millions and billions of years. I'll give you one example. The, um, the moon. Uh, When we were getting ready to send people up to the moon, the moon was supposed to have uh, millions and millions of years of dust accumulated on its surface, which is exactly what you'd expect in an an ancient world, an ancient cosmos. Well, of course, we know Neil Armstrong did not sink down under a, a few miles of dust. Instead, he was able to walk pretty comfortably on the surface. Maybe there's a little dust, but... It was much more in line with thousands of years, not millions of years of dust accumulation. Um, I'll give you one more example. There are dinosaur bones with soft tissue. In fact, not just one or two, many, 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 many dinosaur bones have soft tissue inside of them, which is not possible after millions of years. Now, evolutionists are trying to, they're scrambling, trying to come up with an explanation for that. Why? It's because they're, they're already presupposing that the Bible is not true and that the earth is millions and billions of years old. But the evidence does not accord with that. The, the fact of the matter is, and, and there are great websites out there that do a much better job than what I'm doing in these few minutes to lay out the case for a what we would call a young earth. I actually don't like that term, young earth, because the earth is older than anything else out there. But it's a lot younger than millions and billions of years supposed by evolutionists. But all that to say, The starting point for science itself undercuts an an anti-biblical view. It undercuts it from the get-go. So if you're doing science, you're already presupposing the truth of the Bible, which says young young earth. But then once you start engaging in science, you've got to start coming up with all these ad hoc explanations for why your discoveries don't support an old earth. So that's a, a brief introduction to the subject, and maybe I'll just leave it there
1: all right does that answer your question for the, for the time being beans um uh first of all thank you and also what kind of christian are you
0: um well what do you mean all right and you're welcome and what do you mean by that
1: like what what denomination or whatever
0: okay yeah fair enough my church is southern baptist Um, my pastors are reformed Baptist, which the two are not mutually exclusive. Um, I myself, if this means anything to you subscribe to what's commonly called Calvinism or the doctrines of grace, I'm a Protestant. I, I hold to new covenant theology, which I also explain on my website, on my YouTube channel and podcast. If you search for new covenant theology, um, I am a, I've got a bunch of other views as well, but, uh, those are some of the broad categories I would fall
1: into. thank you. Thank you. Un London resident has a question. I that's to translate it. So, oh, he says, "Why so the Bible against hate, and it's based in most cases justified? So, why it says why is hmm. the Bible so against hate when it's based as in, or cool or and most and in most cases justified?" says this guy.
0: Why is hate—so why is the Bible against hate when hate is based and in most cases justified? Well, the Bible hates sin because it's bad for you. The Bible hates prejudging people because it's bad for society, it's bad for your neighbor, and it dishonors your neighbor. There's nothing based about prejudging somebody. There's nothing based about showing partiality towards anybody. The Bible— calls us to be holy as God is holy. There are things that God hates. God hates evil. God hates idolatry. God hates adultery. God hates murder. God hates theft. God hates slanderously bearing false witness, lying about somebody under oath. Uh, God God hates all those things. God hates hands that shed innocent blood, haughty eyes. Uh, In the book of Proverbs, it talks about the seven things that God hates. God hates when a fool is wise in his own eyes, meaning he thinks that he's wise. Why? Because a fool is someone who, by definition, is not following God. I, I don't mean um, a, a, a intellectually deficient person. I mean a person who's living foolishly, morally foolishly. And God hates when that fool is wise in his own eyes because a person who's, who thinks that they're wise in their own eyes is never going to repent and turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. So if you hate those things that God hates— Yeah, that's plenty-based. There's nothing wrong with that at all. You should hate those things. That being said, the number one place where hatred of sin should start is in your own heart. Examine your heart. More than that, ask the Lord to examine your heart and to find out where those things are in your own heart that you should hate. If you think hate is justified and based, then you probably recognize that there's evil in this world. What you have to understand is that evil is not just out there. Evil is internal. Evil is, there's this great illustration that the Lord Jesus gives. Jesus is the greatest, Jesus, want to talk about the most based person in the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this, he says, here's what, here's what he says. He goes, maybe you've heard the expression, judge not, lest you be judged. Non-Christians love to quote that passage um, against Christians. They say, oh, you're judging. Jesus himself said, judge not. When you look at what Jesus was saying in context, though, it's just brilliant. And it does not mean never give judgment ever. Here's what it means, which, by the way, that's a judgment. So it can't mean that. Here's what he says. He goes, with the judgment that you use to judge someone else, you yourself will be judged with the same standard. So he says, before you take, he says, why do you try to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye? Before you take the plank out of your own eye, just imagine that for a second. Imagine that you know you're looking over at your neighbor, your friend, your brother, your, your whoever, and you see he's got a little speck, a little black little dot on the white of his eye. Oh, it just bothers you to see that, and you're like, oh, let me get that out of your eye for you. It's got to be uncomfortable. Let me, your eyes watering. Let me help you. And all the while, sticking out of your left eye is a two by four. just crammed in your eye. That is hilarious. Uh, There's a a preacher, Mark Driscoll, who preached a uh, sermon on this years ago and just talked about how Jesus was funny because that is a hilarious image. But the point should really hit home that before you deal with anybody else, before you hate their sin because you think it's based to do that, you need to look internally and find out where are those glaring inconsistencies with even what you say is right And those areas where you're not living up, even to your own standards, let alone to the standards of God Almighty, who's perfect. And get right with God. Get rid of your own sin first. Then, yeah, go out and hate on sin. Absolutely. One of the most loving things you can do is to call somebody out for their sin. But you have to do Here's the thing. In the process, if you want to be like God in this process, if you want to be like Jesus, you have to be loving when you do it. You have to call out their sin because you love God and you love your neighbor. So if it's like if if your child is about to uh, jump off of a ledge, you you yell, you go, stop, and you come and you pick them up and you set them gently on the ground. Not because you hate them and you want to spoil their fun, but because you love them. In the same way, when you are correcting someone else, it needs to be done in a loving way because quite frankly, that's how God deals with us. Also, we can do that too. One more thing. We can we can be loving and uh, patient because that is how God acts towards us. And also, we trust, if you're a Christian, I don't know that you are or not, but I would hope that you would become one. Repent and trust in Jesus if you haven't. We understand that ultimately God is going to punish every sin. Every sin will either be paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago or by the sinner himself burning in hell for all eternity so every sin will be dealt with god hates sin this is why i call everyone who hears me i want everyone to hear this repent of your sins turn from your sins and turn to jesus christ he is patient he will forgive your sins and you can trust him so something to think about
1: all right so night year asks um that year posted a story by the New York Times about nine children and one adult being killed in a car crash in Alabama. And it says, uh, how can God just justify killing abused kids in a protective house dying in a crash by and by burning alive? So I guess the story goes into to uh, graphic detail on the perhaps mm-hmm. and the situation. So this is a, a grievous very uh uh extreme case yeah so like how so yeah so how quote unquote how can god justify uh, him doing this quote unquote?
0: yeah fair enough first of all i want to i want to just say uh two things one i read stories like that and i have the exact same question <laughs> it, my, my initial reaction is the exact is well i'll say this it's very similar my question is I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm submitted to Jesus. So my question is not, God, how can you justify this? But God, why did you allow this to happen? How is this, how does this fit into your plan? Because it sounds horrific. It sounds horrible. And it is horrible. The second thing I want to say is this. The reason why we recognize it's horrible is because the Bible is true. There's a reason why we get really upset when we hear that people are dying in horrible ways. The the reason is we recognize in our hearts that human beings are made in the image of God and therefore have inherent dignity. Even the worst person in the world has a certain level of dignity, God-given, that means that their life has moral value. As a matter of fact, the reason why we recognize horrible people, as being horrible people in a way that we wouldn't like, we wouldn't condemn a lion for eating a gazelle, but we do, con- you know, we condemn evil people for doing evil things. We hold them to a different standard. It's because we recognize that there is moral significance to humanity. So the reason why we wretch when we see and hear about people dying in brutal ways is because the Bible is true. The Bible says we are made in the image of God. The Bible says that God knits us together in our mother's wounds in Psalm 139. So, by, by asking the question, we are already granting that what the Bible says is true. Now, if you say, well, no, the Bible's not true, well, then you have to come up with some reason outside of God, outside of the absolute standard that is God, for why you hate to hear about people dying like that. If you say well I'm just evolved that way that's not a good enough reason that's very subjective and I mentioned earlier in a different question that actually undercuts all of your beliefs including the belief that man has dignity that human beings have rights and 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 don't deserve that kind of death. Okay so understand that I'm starting from a biblical position where I do believe as it seems like you do too that human beings have dignity and not I mean and and horrible horrible abuse is rightly condemned and that it's awful to hear about people dying in in painful ways. I'm starting from that presupposition. I'm starting from that position because I believe the Bible is true. Next, I ask, why did God allow this to happen? Now, let me address something in the way that you asked your question. You said, how can God justify that? My question that I want to ask to you is, justify to whom? Justify to whom? God doesn't need to be justified to us. God does not need to ex- to give an explanation for why he does things to us. We are not his creator. He is ours. The Bible describes us in Isaiah and in Romans chapter 9 as pots. We are pottery. He is the potter. And actually, that's a, uh, a that's kind of cool because God actually formed Adam out of clay, red clay. So we are in a sense we are pottery we're living breathing you know multicellular pottery which is kind of cool but God is the potter and it is inappropriate for the pottery to expect that the potter explains everything that he's doing with them and we say well okay fine so what god's god and that's it and i just i shouldn't ask why well no because there's two more steps to it to to the answer the first ant- the, the first reason is that God is God and He does not owe us an explanation. He just I mean, quite frankly, he just doesn't. God is not on God is not on our level. It, for all we know, if he gave us an explanation, it would blow our feeble little minds. But nevertheless, we, we long for an explanation. So what do we do? The second thing we have to realize is that God is perfectly good. He's not just all powerful, he's also good. And over and over and over again in Scripture, Genesis fifty 20 um romans 8:28, acts chapter 2 we find over and over that god uses evil for good purposes and in the end all evil will be undone and and the end result will be good you say well how, i don't see how that could possibly happen when horrible things like this happen listen i don't either i'm also not god But the Bible says, so it's the same Bible that says that human beings have dignity. That same Bible says that God is good and is working all things out according to his good plan. So you can't have one without the other. If you think human beings have dignity, innocent children deserve to be treated, you know, well, you have to also say, well, that same Bible says that God, God, look, it's the book of Genesis that says we are made in the image of God and the book of Genesis, which says that, um, what? What man intends for evil, God intends for good. So you cannot have one without the other. If you negate one, you're negating the other as well. But then the third part of the answer is this. The the sovereign God who is in total control also is with his people. So there's a reason why when I hear stories like that, it makes me very, very sad, but I don't lose my faith in God. Why? Because I've I've followed the I follow Jesus now for 33 years, and he's never once wronged me. He's never once given me anything bad that I didn't deserve. Now, I also believe I'm a sinner saved by grace. I also believe that I'm, you know, a wretched man uh, who deserves hell. And I think about all the grace that God's given me in my life, and it's like, the, it doesn't even compute. You know, maybe you can think back on your own life. And you can say, well, let's take the attention off of this horrible story over here for a second. Let me think about my own life. Have I gotten what I deserve for my own sins? Or has God been incredibly gracious to me for these you know, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it's been? And if that's the case, then we say, well, maybe God doesn't have to justify himself to me. Maybe I've got to figure out how I can get justified before God. And what the Bible says is that there's only one who justifies, that is Jesus Christ. He makes us right before God. He justifies us before God. But every word of God proves true. And the Bible does say that God is justified when he speaks and proved right when he judges. So, um, what I would, what I would, uh, encourage you to do is when you're faced with horrible tragedies like that, I would encourage you to cry out to God, the God that gave you a conscience, the God, the God that, by the way, sent his own son to experience excruciating death and pain, even though he was innocent. And that son, when he was here on the earth, addressed a horrible tragedy where innocent people were killed. Um, Herod, the king had, had mingled their blood with their sacrifices. It was this horrible, disgusting thing that the king had done. It was just this gross example of, um, governmental violence against citizens. And Jesus said, do you think that those, those Galileans were any more sinful than anyone else? No. But I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So when we hear about people dying horribly, It should get us to cry out to God and to say, God, I will never understand all the answers in this world, but I understand that I myself am a sinner and I throw myself at your mercy, knowing that someday I'm going to die and I'm going to have to stand before you and give an account for all the sin that I've ever committed in my life. And I, I trust in Jesus Christ, the one who was truly innocent, who died on my behalf and conquered death and rose again. And then I wanted to just leave you with this as well. The Bible, the same Bible that's, that says all these things I've been saying, also says that one day there will be a, re- a resurrection. And the Bible gives us incredible hope that for all those who trust in Jesus, who Jesus saves, there will be a resurrection, and we will live with him in a new body. Death will actually be rolled back, just like the stone was rolled back in front of Jesus' tomb. Death will be rolled back undone. And the future of God's people is glorious beyond imagining. So I don't know if that is satisfying to you. I can tell you it's satisfying to me, but that's because I trust in Jesus. If you don't trust in Jesus, I don't see how that's going to satisfy you. And I would say, stop trusting in yourself, repent and trust in Jesus. And the world's going to make a lot more sense.
1: Thank you so much for that Joel.
0: Okay, that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of the Think Institute and is produced by Yours Truly, Joel Sedekes. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of Crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support the Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute/partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message, and we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think.